Hi, I'm Chinny. And I'm Astrid, and welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that widens access to African history. We're also the co-authors of a book by the same name. You can find out more information about us on itsacontinent.com. We're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country by appreciating the identity of each nation. Through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. So hello and welcome to another episode of It's a Continent. Um, We've got a special episode for you today. We are joined by a special guest, chef, entrepreneur and now author, Maria Bradford. Now, Maria was born in Freetown in Sierra Leone, where her passion for food emerged. And we're really excited to be joined by Maria today, where she will be talking around African fusion, food, um, the history of African food, and um, about her book, Sweet Salone. So welcome, Maria, to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm quite excited about being here. Yes, no, absolutely. <laughs> so are we. Yeah, and thank you for joining us. You've both got like copies of the books. Absolutely um, stunning. Thank you. To start off with, I think you described the book as very much uh, kind of focusing on African fusion food. What inspired mm-hmm. you to kind of embark on this culinary journey? I, I think the inspiration for the book really comes from this passion of highlighting Sierra Leone and um, changing the narrative of Sierra Leone. So the book kind of focuses on Sierra Leone, like people, the culture, the cuisine, my take on African ingredients or West African ingredients in the Afrofusion. But I really wanted to be able to talk about Sierra Leone, Sierra Leonean culture, and um, the people in Sierra Leone and how friendly we are. So that's the inspiration behind it. So I thought I could use what I'm passionate about, which is food, to help with that narrative. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, that's what we're also about in terms of just countering the, the narrative that, that is perceived around around the continent of Africa. And, and of course, um, mm-hmm. you're looking at um, Sierra Leone as well. Yeah. You described Africa as the final frontier of food. And how do mm-hmm. you now see this relationship between African cuisine, its potential and position in the global culinary scene? How do you see it evolving um, as you counter this narrative? I, I think, you know, for me, I feel like African food, West African food especially, because that's what I'm really familiar with. I feel like it's got massive, massive um, potential because, um, so take a tiny nation like Sierra Leone, for example, there's 16 different tribes and each of those 16 different tribes brings something new to Sierra Leonean cuisine. And I'm not even going into like places like Nigeria or Ghana it's much more bigger, like Senegal yeah. and, Gan- and Ga- Gambia. And that. So this huge potential, huge, vast amounts of ingredients that hasn't been, even been explored properly yet. And I always say to my vegetarian and vegan friends, like, if you really want to be vegetarian and vegan and not struggle and not really worry about meat at all, like focus on African ingredients and African food because there's so much there and um and we haven't even touched like a percentage of it and i feel like it's now is the time to bring um our food into the forefront and bring our heritage into the forefront of it because um our food comes with lots of culture lots of hand-me-down um history that's you know that's not written down because even for my own journey um i didn't learn to cook by somebody writing things down and passing it to me it's through stories it's through earning it it's through looking it's through being in the kitchen it's definitely true in terms of like the timing of it and I guess 
one thing that would be quite interesting to understand from your side, like what do you think, especially when we look at fine dining and perception of African food, do you think, you know, what is the average person's kind of perception of that within the fine dining space? It's it's really for us also to say, like when I say to people, and I, and I know that there's lots of, um, I've been asked this before, where people feel like the minute you say fine dining African or fine dining West African food, people immediately think like you have an issue with your own cuisine. But I'm saying, who says fine dining is just about European food? Yeah. Who says African ingredients and African food cannot be fine dining? Who defines what fine dining is? I yeah. can't eat my food without cutlery. It's about the quality of the ingredients. It's about where those ingredients are coming from. It's about the same way that, you know, when I think about fine dining, for you, even in the European context, I am not just talking about the ambience that the food is served. I'm talking about how those ingredients are sourced and who says that cannot be transferred into African ingredients. Those ingredients are equally just as important as any other ingredients in the world that can be defined as fine dining. So. It's not a case of, oh, I don't have a respect for, oh, I want to change um, my ingredients. It's saying that there's no difference. Yeah. It's me challenging that perspective that um, who says fine dining just belongs to the French or belongs to the European cuisine. Who we says can definitely that, own that space <laughs> as well. We can yeah. definitely own that space as well. We can do it with African takes on it. A friend of mine once did a supper club where we did Books like Things Fall Apart. That I love that book so much. Oh, nice. Example. Yes. And we use the ingredients in it and we set out a scene and did a fine dining dinner around that. So who says we cannot use our ways to create fine dining um, space? And like when I do um, dinners, supper clubs or dinners sometimes, I would do a colonel biscuits to introduce people because that's what we do. We break colonel in Sierra Leone to welcome people. So it's about us okay. owning that space and saying yeah. this is what fine dining means to us. And it's about mm. the quality of our ingredients. And it's also for us to push our suppliers and people who are responsible for supplying us those foods, challenging them, saying our food cannot just be seen in this way. We can also challenge you to produce those food well so that we can compete in any market, in any Western market as well. So for me, that's what fine dining means when it comes to African food. Definitely. And the coconut cookies sound really nice. I would want to try that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because um, it's, it's really, really Moorish. And um, it's been like a really nice butter, really rich butter oh, biscuit mm, kind of mm, shortbread. Mm. We're using coconuts in it. So it's got like a nice. slight bitterness to it. But it's also got that richness of, um, of um, um, butter and biscuits and shortbread oh, and all yes. added to it um, as well. No, and it's all around like redefining like what what is the perception absolutely. Yeah. absolutely it's redefining those ingredients and the thing is they are ours I always say to people I'm African I'm West African I'm Sierra Leonean it's um you it's a Sierra Leonean chef doing it my perception of food for the most part my formative years was all based around African food and African ingredients and Sierra Leonean ingredients it's only when I came to England that those kind of I started being introduced to new ingredients and trying it and testing it. But I've also pushed myself to learn about other ingredients and the European ingredients as well and bringing those two together and merging it and forming what this fusion is. So that is my superpower. That's, my, that's what makes me as a chef special because um, I'm able to understand both sides and learn about both ingredients and appreciate it 
I like the fact that you describe it as your superpower. I think it's a beautiful way to describe it because you're, I think, like you said, it's appreciating both and how can you bring that together? It doesn't mean, you know, one is better than the other. It's about how do you bring and kind of create a completely different experience um, Mm. and stuff. It'd be interesting. I think in the book, you talk about kind of, you know, moving to the UK, we'd love to hear a bit more about your sort of migration story, you know, how did this play, you've alluded to it a little bit, but how did this play a role in your taste for Afrofusion food and recipes, you know, how did it influence you? So I've always, always loved cooking and food was such a massive part of my upbringing and um, in our household, um, my mother and my family usually joke that no event is um, done properly if my mother is not involved, especially when it comes to food and um, my grandmother. And that. so I grew up with huge amounts of women around and everyone weekends cooking. And then that was, I felt like that was taken from me. And um, I was sent to the UK and um, I came to the UK and I was staying with the Guardian. But um, in that time um, where it's just, you just kind of had your formation years and then um, you've kind of started making friends and then you're uprooted very, very quickly. And then um, you find yourself in a, in a new environment. And um, the one thing that felt like home to me was food and that was absent. And I felt like that I missed more than anything else because um, I just wasn't familiar with, um, I knew what apple is, um, you know, but we didn't have that many varieties of apples in Sierra Leone. And, um, and I found myself not in a big city, for example, I found myself in Kent, um, in a little um, town or village, I call it, Westmoreland. And so it, it's a very small place and not very multicultural. I didn't really for a very, very long time see anyone that really looked like me at all. Um, and you felt all of a sudden you feel very, very self-aware. You know, I've never been in that position where I'm the only anything in any environment. I've always been like part yeah. of an environment. And all of a sudden I am the only one, whether it's school, whether it's my local, whether it's my local job or wh- whatever I'm doing, I am the only person there. And so food became this thing that I could start conversation with. Food became this mm. thing that um, I could say, oh, have you tried this? And it quickly, you know, after you start making friends, you quickly realize that what you've grown up knowing as food, as something that's really important to you, is very in- insignificant to other people. Like they don't even want to know about it. They don't even care to learn about it. And so this, it's almost like this thing in me has always been like, in, in order for me to really tell you about where I'm from, I need yeah. to get you to taste my food. I need to get you to taste that peanut butter stew, which is what, mm. which was what I did. <laughs> yeah. I, I need to try that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need to get you to taste my granite too, because when you taste my granite soup, you understand what family means You understand, means to me. yeah. understand what food means to me. You understand when I say my mom cooks, my grandmother cooks, all my family gathers together. You understand that what that means. So food became that thing that I could really tell those stories without making a huge say, sit down, let me tell you about my life kind of thing. Because food became that kind of thing where you can also get people to open up and really ask you and really tell you how they're, they're feeling and, 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 and all of that. So that's, that's how, you know, the whole food thing continued for me. So, um, and it wasn't really, and of course, each time I cook something for somebody, whether it's um, friends that I was um, hanging out with or when I went to uni, 
whether it was friends that I was at uni with. And each time we're eating those food, they're asking me questions and we're talking like, oh, you know, how come you're doing accounting? Why aren't you doing food? Because you enjoy talking about food. This is a way for me to feel comfortable in this situation as well so that I can cook my own food and so that you can try it. And so that it gives me that chance again to talk about Sierra Leone. And the more I talk about Sierra Leone, the more I realize that people don't have anything nice to talk about Sierra Leone and all they wanted to bring was the war and that kind of even pushed me even further to say mm-hmm. right i need to push this food down your throat so you can <laughs> stop talking to me about the war and we can talk about all the amazing stuff that i've grown up with yes the war happened and yes other things have happened but um i just feel like i don't want to discuss it Too so amazing. maybe let's discuss other things that i feel comfortable about discussing and food became that thing that i was comfortable discussing and i think i really love in the book you how beautifully you kind of weaving you know sharing the recipes but also telling not only your story and your family's story you see just how central food is in terms of being able to tell that story but also be able to tell the story a little bit around Sierra Leone and kind of representing its full breadth and not you know going beyond just the war and I think it's yeah it's it's beautifully kind of done I think I want to Kind of take you back a little bit. You mentioned around, you know, having moved here, you're an accountant, you know, you ended up pursuing your passion kind of later down the line. You know, could you tell us a bit more about kind of what led you to that point of like, okay, I've been doing accountancy for um, 10 plus years now. I'm now going to follow my passion and see if I can make this work. Like, did you, what was the thing that sort of, pushed you into doing that and did you face any challenges in that be it from yourself or um kind of friends and family yeah um so of course like I've always I've had supportive um family in terms of like even so my my daughter to be honest um my husband my family and friends because um whenever they visit at Christmas since I've met Ben for example I don't think we've ever actually gone to his parents' house um, for Christmas dinner. They've always come around to, to ours because um, his mom always said to me, oh, no, I don't want to cook for you. I think it would be best yeah. if we just bring some ingredients or I can make this and bring it and then we can have Christmas around yours. Or maybe you can come around for Christmas, but maybe you can bring this. So food has always been that thing where everybody knows that I am good with food and I'm good with ingredients and I'm always keen. Like if I travel... I have to do a cooking course. I cannot go to a place and not learn about the cuisine of that place. It doesn't matter if I go to France. Um, I have to learn a bit more about what's happening in the food culture and I have to eat local. I have to eat where the locals eat. So, um, of course, um, that has always been in the center and everybody has always been like, oh, you should open this, you should do something, you should do that. And I've never really taken it serious because also they're close to me. And I feel like um, when people are close to you, they are used to eating your food. So to them, you're amazing at everything that you do. So I, I, you could say I didn't trust their opinions too much about whether what I was doing was really good. Um, I had this thing where my cousin was getting married and then she asked me to um, do her wedding. Um, I um and out about it a little bit. Um, and I, then I thought, and she was like, well, we're getting married in your garden. And I thought, okay, well, that's fine. Um, I will do it. Makes it easier. So, <laughs> yes. Makes it easier, exactly. So I catered for her wedding and she had 60 of her friends um, there and a few of her families that were there as well. And a lot of people didn't really know me. And after the wedding, everybody was asking who was the caterer and um, can they have 
my contact details. I didn't have That's a, a education company or, or anything like that. And we did like, I don't know, six or seven different courses. So it was mad. I went all out. And so people genuinely thought I had a catering business, which I didn't. And um, they were asking for it. And afterwards, everyone was like, you see, we've been telling you you're really, really good. I think you should do something about it. And that was in 2017. So I just posted some of those photos on social media. And, um, and each photo that I posted, I wrote about it and I wrote my feeling about it. And I wrote how um, that kind of connects with me in Sierra Leone and just those stories I've always been telling, but not actually writing it down. Um, and the, the, the feedback from Instagram and social media was just crazy. I just woke up, I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe that so many people were interested in um, knowing so much about what I was doing and what I was writing and, and that. And so it went from there. The drinks, some of the drinks that we served at the events and things that I've been doing for friends and that, I decided that, okay, well, let me bottle these and do try out a farmer's market. And I still had my job then. So I bottled um, the chili sauce was the, the first few things that I bottled. And we did the farmer's market and then I did the drinks. And again, the reception at the farmer's market was just insane. The day that we went to farmer's market, everything just finished immediately. Oh, wow. Um, wow. And people were keen. They were asking for my details. And that just gave me this motivation. So I started because at that time, the drinks weren't, the shelf life was very short. It was like three days. So I had to like do it, sell it. And so it worked out really well that it sold out. Um, immediately. So I started looking at how I can extend the shelf life of that. And then, of course, I started having requests about doing more and more events. Mm -hmm. But um, I always say probably it's the, it's the African in me and now where we feel like we have to have qualification for everything. People started <laughs> calling me <laughs> a chef. Another master's. Yeah. <laughs> Another master's, yeah. That did not sit well with me. I was finding it very uncomfortable. Each time someone called me a chef, I really cringed. I was like, oh, I'm not really a chef. I'm just like cooking. And I always find a way of explaining it, which yeah. it just found, it, I just felt like I was a fraud because I thought, well, this is something that I haven't really worked hard for. It's just kind of, these things have just fallen into place. I, I was mm -hmm. working physically hard, but not in putting all the things together. And I just felt like, Hmm, I don't know if I want you to call me a chef because I felt like a chef is somebody who has worked in a kitchen, professional kitchen, for years and they've been doing all of this stuff. And um, my husband kept saying to me, well, to be fair, you've been cooking since you were nine and your knowledge mm -hmm. of food is insane. So if somebody is calling you a chef, I don't think that's far sketch because you've got so much experience with food. But I still, like for me, it just wasn't working out at all. So I took myself to culinary school because um, I just felt like if I go to a culinary school and um, I see that I'm really good there and people who don't know me, who don't know anything about me, say that I'm good, then maybe I can start believing in my own potential and saying to myself, yes, I'm really, really good. And, um, and I have to say, culinary school was one of the easiest things I've ever done. Um, <laughs> you know, I... I, I <laughs> And I, I, I remember saying to my mom, like, I know that when I was little, you always used to say that I'm very academic and um, I'm very easy. Um, you know, I find school very easy, but I, I didn't find it easy. I worked my butt off and I really, really studied hard for everything, all the good grades that I got. 
this is the one time where I didn't have to think too much about it and it just all the puzzles naturally it's just naturally yeah and all the puzzles just fitted in perfectly um it was meant to be a stressful time but I didn't find it stressful and that gave me that extra confidence and that extra boost that okay you are good at this and you can do this so I did quit my job shortly after that and um focus um my entire being on just um doing Maria Bradford and what it was at that time and of course my social media grew um Cerulean started seeing what I was doing and um I was doing more events I was doing more supper clubs in London um shortly after that they started reposting all the bits I was doing and calling it strange strange which means fancy in um in Creole so when I rebranded, I decided to go for what the people want and call my brand Shen Shen. Lovely. Now, what a story. That is incredible. <laughs> An incredible journey that you've had. Um, <laughs> and just in terms of when you, like the way that you've written the book and you've woven in your experiences of, of traveling back and in certain bits of uh, Sierra Leonean history, it just really gives us that added context and, and depth. Uh, to the recipes almost as if we have like are traveling or like we've traveled to Sierra Leone with you um as well um yeah. so the way that you've captured traveling back to your your grandmother's uh, village how does that how did that experience that uh, how did that shape out for you and what is the difference between that dining culture there and and also what you bring through your your supper clubs and and, and through Shuen Shuen um, I think if going to Sierra Leone and doing, I think one of the best things that the publisher did for the book was actually funding a location shoot. Because um, doing writing and writing the book and writing all of those stories is immensely important. But until somebody kind of, until for me also going to the provinces and really going into the villages and going into my grandmother's village or my great-grandmother's village and tracing some of my great-grandmother's steps um, of her first time coming into Sierra Leone. Um, for me, those were very, very important. And so I wanted to take people through that journey. I wanted to take someone through, when you first step into Sierra Leone, what are those feelings? How are you going to feel? And I kept asking David, the photographer that I went with, constantly like, how are you? How are you feeling? And that because um, I was also trying to live through his experience and through his eyes of seeing Sierra for the first time. But for me also, because I grew up in Freetown, because so I was born and raised in Freetown, and I didn't really get a chance to spend that much time in the provinces because by the time I was about 10, the war broke out in the provinces. And so there wasn't really that much travel. So this time, really embedding myself in the in my own culture and really traveling to my great-grandmother's village, it was a massive eye-opener. It brought me back to the whole commensality of cooking together, eating together, how much that brings people together and how much, like, it feels like everyone is family. You can't even tell, like, who's just friends and neighbors and who's family. And it was such a beautiful thing. And it just made me miss that. I almost felt sorry for my kids because I felt like they're never going to experience what I experienced as a child, just um, where you have your, your parents and you have your mom, you have your grandmother, you have your biological family, but everybody around you, your aunties, your neighbors, they're like an extension of that family. They're people that you can call on. And it's all of those connections are made through food. 
and they made through cooking together, eating together and sharing food and talking about food and that. And it just brought me all of that back. And it was so important. And I really wanted people to kind of get that and engage that. Immensely important. And to the book as well, because um, the message mm-hmm. was always really to showcase to people about Sierra Leone culture and change that perspective and encourage people if they ever get a chance to visit. And also to say, you know, you might have had A, B, C, and D of African food, but this is African food and this is Africa and this is what we do. And we're not ashamed of it. We don't have electricity and blenders to do all of this. We have mortar and pestle and we're so proud of it and I want to embrace it and I want to showcase it. And I feel immensely proud when the women just throw three stones together and threw some wood and cook the most delicious food from it. And I'm sitting there and I'm eating it and I'm so proud of them. Like, you oh, know, when in, in, I'm in England, I've got a stove of all of these yeah. gadgets. Doesn't hit the same. <laughs> But here you are, you know, even from de-husking that rice to they took us to the stream and caught some fish and cooked that. It was just the most amazing experience ever. And I really wanted to showcase that in the book. And um, for people to just not also experience Freetown, if they also ever visit or any part of Africa, really, I feel like embed yourself into the culture and go into those places, forbidden places that people say, oh, don't go here, don't go here. You'd be amazed at um, what you'll find and how uh, culturally relevant it is to, to our diet and to our cuisine and what gives all the men and women six packs that we don't have, that I don't have. <laughs> <laughs> and you definitely yeah. like going through like the pictures and stuff. It's so stunning the way it's been it's been captured and stuff and then like the combination with your words and the recipes honestly it's yeah fantastic work and Chini and I both massively enjoy just having that experience because as Chini said it really does feel like it's not just a recipe book but you're really experiencing the culture alongside it as well and you really get kind of your sense of passion and through throughout the book one thing that I wanted to ask you I think that you mentioned in the book is around um obviously it's a huge topic at the moment around waste and so you highlight in terms of like um cultural practices Mm -hmm. and you know minimizing waste in the kitchen um Mm -hmm. it'd be interesting to get your thoughts you know what do you what is your approach now in your kitchen when it comes to cooking more sustainably avoiding Mm -hmm. wastage like how do you Mm -hmm. approach that I, I I have amazing local suppliers. So one of the ways that I really try to avoid waste as well is doing stop doing massive, massive shops. Because um we I know we all have like busy lives. Even for my home life, I tend to do that now. I don't do massive, massive shops. I shop as and when needed. Um and I try and shop local. Um I have a fishmonger, I have a butcher, I have a veg lady. And um, I can say, okay, and plan ahead. I feel like if you plan your meals and plan ahead, that helps immensely. And in the kitchen, when I have events, I plan, okay, I'm cooking for 20 people. Um, I might add a bit more to say, right, this is what I'm doing. And if there's anything left over, I do freeze a lot. I even freeze egg whites. And um, I, I reuse those egg whites later to do mirans. You'd be surprised, like, if you freeze your egg whites after you make mayonnaise and you can mm-hmm. just reuse that later to make amazing meringues and um or just whip it and um make some mousse with it or make something else with it but i will freeze it 
I wouldn't freeze all of it together because I know when I'm ready to use it later, I won't be able to use all of it. So I'll freeze it bit by bit. Um, for home life, I always say cook in bulk because if you cook in bulk, you're, you find some of my recipes, it's always say six to eight. And I know that sometimes people are like, the six to eight, not many people in the UK or in Europe and America have six to eight people that they're living with. Like, because yeah. as Africans, we cook bulk. You cook bulk mm. and you put it in Tupperwares and you freeze it. Yeah. So for those <laughs> days where you don't want to cook, you know that there's a frozen cassava leaf in the freezer that you can look forward to. And you can always say, you know, you can, you can turn down those dinners that people want to feed you and so spend money. And you're like, mm, I've got something nice waiting for me at home. And it's just a case of taking one freezer, one freezer Tupperware out and cooking some rice. And that's it. You've got a full-blown lovely dinner waiting for you that you don't have to worry about. Yeah, it's really about rethinking how yeah. you approach the day-to-day, right? Like not buying yeah. a bark. And I think I'm definitely guilty of that in terms of your thinking, I'm doing this shop now and I need to buy. And it's really planning it and being much more conscious in, yeah, your approach. It's just, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you've got carrots and stuff that is going and you know that, okay, I'm not going to be able to cook this. Um, eat this today and they're going a bit funny I always say like vegetables just um, bung it in the oven with some you know spices or fresh herbs just roast it put it in a tupperware put it in the fridge because you could just have that with some rotisserie chicken that you could just pick up and eat it with that vegetable and so it's not wilted and you look at it and you go oh they're a bit funny I need to chuck it but you've already roasted it and it's in your fridge yeah no that is much needed advice for sure and all this talk about food is like, I've, I've eaten, but I'm hungry again now. So, <laughs> But um, with so many of these like delicious recipes that you've been describing and also that you've written uh, in the book, do you have a personal favourite? You are wicked. <laughs> <laughs> it's like asking which one of my kids are my favourite. It's like, oh, that's a tough one. I don't have a favourite. Um, so it it depends on what mood I'm in. If I'm in um a missing home and I want a food hog and um a missing certain aspect, then cassava leaf is my go-to. But um, if I'm in a mood where I'm like, "Mm, yeah, I really need a good African take on something, then I will go to the Afrofusion section. Any one of those dishes, it depends. Like, I'm a massive fan of fried cassava chips. Because I feel like there's nothing like cassava chips. Like when you put some parmesan on it, it's ridiculous. So that cassava chips, like it depends. If I'm feeling really naughty and I don't want to cook and I'm just like hanging out and I want some drinks, the cassava chips with the parmesan and uh, the saffron mayo and that truffle, white truffle oil. Yeah, that is my go-to as well. Like just, or just snacking on pepper chicken the street food section I love street food absolutely love street food because um, I find anywhere in the world that I go I just find street food is the one thing that I focus on immediately because it's the quickest way to learn a lot about someone's culture and the country's culture no you, you've put it beautifully Maria honestly okay <laughs> thank you thank you for not making me choose <laughs> you, you said it yourself like if you want a food hug from Sierra Leone definitely yes. check out Sweets Alone like Chile and I were looking at the recipe kind of highlighting which ones we want to try out and things like honestly it's <laughs> yeah amazing amazing thank you thank so you. much for joining us and kind of sharing 
your story, telling us a bit more about how you got into what you're doing today and working in the kitchen and kind of your supper clubs and also your book. Is there anything before we leave our lovely listeners that you'd like to share um, in terms of what you're currently up to, how they can reach out to you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I have got my online shop with all my products um, on there and um, they are street drinks and some of them are for fusion drinks as well, but they're all on my website and you can find it on um, shrinshrin.com. But of course, it's encouraging people to buy my cookbook, but not only buy the cookbook, also find time to review it. And the reason why I say find time to review it, of course, publishing job, like, you know, it doesn't matter how you put it. It's a business. So publishers are not going to invest in, in books um, that they felt it's not going to sell. And we want to put African food on the map. We want to get more and more black chefs and African people to write about their food culture and write about their food ways. We want to encourage that. That's incredible. Thank you so much for joining us, honestly. Um, Thank it's you. been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. 